Simon Sinek has referred to business as the infinite game, where the objective isn't the market cap or income or the number position on the Fortune 500 list. The objective is to keep playing. I'm intrigued by how rapidly business is evolving, how a business's capitalized has changed the workplace and culture, operational cycles, benefits and compensation, marketing. You know, the list goes on. It's really hard to keep track of it all. Hey, everyone, this is Patrick Donahoe, and you're listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. We're on episode 13 of season three in 2018, and my guest today is going to speak to all of these points that I've mentioned, and his name's Jonas Sachs, and he's the best-selling author of Winning the Story Wars, which was written in 2012, and a fascinating, fascinating book, especially in regards to marketing, and uh, his new book, which is called Unsafe Thinking. So please welcome Jonas Sachs. Welcome to the 2018 seasons of the Wealth Standard Podcast, celebrating the principles of life, liberty, and property. You are listening to season three, Property. My guest today is the uh, co-founder of Free Range Studios, which created the Metrix, a uh, short flash animation critical of factory farming and industrial agricultural practices that has been translated into more than 30 languages and watched more than 30 million people. He's also the New York Times bestselling author of Winning the Story Wars, Why Those Who Tell and Live the Best Stories Will Rule the Future. And he also has a new book out, which I'm really excited to talk about, which is Unsafe Thinking, How to Be Nimble and Bold When You Need It Most. Jonas Sachs, welcome to uh, the Wealth Standard Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. So, Jonah, I, I thought I would maybe just start with, because you've written these books, they're very incredible concepts, but you explain it in a, in a very meaningful and easy way. What's the audience, like when you're writing, who are you writing for? Like, who are you most wanting to impact and influence? Yeah, you know, I found myself sort of halfway through my career beginning to write business books, and it was never really what I expected to do. I was kind of an artist, a creative, trying to go out and change the world. And in that business space, as I dipped into it, I realized that there was so much that business and people working in business could influence, but they were still very much human beings. So my books in some ways are this weird mixture of kind of self-help, accessing those parts of your creativity you always knew you had, but didn't know how to kind of release, but in that kind of work and business context. So, you know, my first book about storytelling, Winning the Story Wars, is both a kind of manual for how to do better marketing but also a bit of a spiritual journey into the great myths and stories that drive us and a, a call for higher level human values. And my second book, uh, Unsafe Thinking, is how to unlock creativity in your organization so your teams get more productive, but also how to confront you know, your own fears, your own stuck points, and just become a better learner, a better human being. So I'm not sure if it's, a, if it's too weird a combination, but that's what I'm attracted to. I think, especially in this day and age, the the progress and the evolution of business in general is just fascinating to observe. And I think there is a lot of change and influence that can be made through business. That's where the majority of people spend the majority of their time. And it, what I would say, you hit on something that I, that I was curious about. And this, you know, I think I read this on your website or in your bio, but it states that you approach, you know, you use digital media, I guess, you know, book media too, to bring about the ideals uh, or the values of social change. And then you, and you list 
equity, empowerment, responsibility, transparency, and advocacy as those ideals or values. Could you speak to that and talk about maybe some examples or specifically about those values and what you're trying to, what you're advocating and what you're trying to, to, to shift? Yeah. So I came of age and started my business in 1999 when I was 23 years old. And that was a time where the internet was starting to give people the opportunity to communicate entirely differently. I mean, we, we don't even think about it anymore because we're so used to it. But at the time, you know, we were all living in a world where television would tell you what to think and what to do. And you would watch advertising and you'd sit there waiting for your show to start and you'd have no way of responding or talking back. And so what came about in that broadcast era was a, what I call inadequacy marketing. And that's an idea that we're going to tell you that you smell bad, you're not smart enough, you're not good enough. Basically, you stink. And without our product, which is the hero of the stories we tell, you know, you're not going to live your best life. And people would sit there and you'd be like, oh, I guess I'm not that cool. Maybe if I buy the right car or the right shirt or whatever, I'll be acceptable. And that was the engineered, that was the idea of communications. I came of age where I started noticing people were sending around emails about things that they most cared about. And those emails were starting to go viral. Friends were passing along. My mom has cancer. I'm really getting passionate about cancer research. Will you help me? It's a new kind of advertising in a way, this peer-to-peer -peer passing these ideas along. And I started to notice that the ideas that tended to stick in that medium were really different. They weren't about how weak and lame and stupid our friends are. They were telling people, hey, I love you. You can be great. You have a, a bigger part to play. And I call that beginnings of empowerment marketing. You don't tell someone how weak they are. You tell them how strong they can be through relationship with you. And I came to find out later that all our great myths and stories, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey is based on ordinary people making extraordinary change. And so when we get a chance to share the ideas that we want, we often try to lift each other up and reach for our higher human values. And it's all kinds of psychology and science behind this. But I really, that was my clue that in some ways, messages that connect to our deepest passions and who we are as humans have this natural advantage in this new media world. Now, of course, like social media has, again, degraded the conversation in many ways that I didn't predict. But I do think that business now really is no longer uh, succeeding by making people feel insecure and inadequate. It succeeds when it makes people reach for their higher values more often. So maybe as a to expand on a few of those points, where do you see the inequity? Like in what areas do you see the inequity associated with society? And because I agree with a lot of what you're saying, I think people in general, there's fear associated with the human experience. And I think fear has been used in a number of different contexts, whether it's the workplace or at the education system. Where do you see kind of the, the biggest opportunity to create that balance, right? Or that uh, the creation of equity as opposed to inequity? Yeah, I mean, I think what's happened uh, over the last, you know, 150 years, not just in the last 10 years, which where things are really accelerating, is in many ways, we've become sort of mechanized. Human beings have kind of been put in factories, we've been put in schools that are teaching us how to then, then go work in factories. We've been commoditized in a sense. Yeah. And our own creativity and sense of like, multifaceted identities have been kind of crushed down to like, how do you make enough money to get by, you know, just to feed your family and get by. And yeah, you know, in many ways, life has gotten better for many people. We, but we can meet our material needs to some degree, although now we're seeing a lot of people are struggling to do that in our society. But we're having trouble feeling like our communities, we are part of something larger. And I think that that loss of meaning, it's just, it's become 
it never gets completely lost because we're always talking about it. It's become another, again, a huge issue in our society. People are talking about protecting jobs from going overseas, but these are like factory jobs that are already dehumanizing. So how do we find ways to recapture our creative full sense of self where work and contribution to our community and community institutions are all strong? And I think that basically the internet and digital media promised in some ways that we would reignite our sense of agency. But now we see how so many of these tools are really kind of just sucking more life out of local communities and, and you know, more money is just going to Silicon Valley and people are feeling less empowered, even though they've got plenty of time to be on Facebook, even their own data is now being commoditized by somebody else. And so I feel like we do live in this world of where there's a few winners and a lot of people who are just asking, you know, where do I fit? Uh, whether they're doing okay or not, not well at all. And yeah, I'm just trying to help people understand that you know, you're not, I, I did this thing called the story of stuff, this uh, video series, very popular and viral. I was telling people like shopping is not the point of life and you can't, the, our consumer society is in many ways not bringing us happiness and it's ruining the planet. And uh, that was really resonating. People shared it at huge levels. So I just trying to rehumanize our economy, I suppose. Big questions, but there's inequities everywhere and we have the opportunity to heal them, heal some of them because we're so connected now as a society. Yeah, a few years ago, I remember reading a lot about the the hierarchy of needs by Maslow, and it really it it sunk deep because I I started to see how individuals were driven and motivated. And 150 years ago, as you mentioned, people that really didn't have time in the day, right, to think about how they were going to impact the world because they wanted to feed their families. That's pretty much it. There wasn't much time for anything else. And then from and I know you talk a lot about safety in unsafe thinking. But safety is that next rung. And then I think it's uh, relationships after that. And then self-esteem and then self-actualization. And I look at as society is progressing, it's fascinating to look at what technology has been able to do, which is to make the physiological needs a lot more uh, efficient to an extent, as well as safety. And obviously, this is relative as compared to 100 years ago or so. And then I look at really the idea of relationships and people seeking those and then seeking meaning in their work and relevance in the world. And it kind of gives me a chuckle looking at social media and, and what people are trying to obtain as far as their needs are concerned, right, as it relates to what they post or what they say or how they respond. And uh, so I, I look at the phase of, of society that we're in right now, and I think it's becoming almost kind of a cliche as far as be the person that you pretend to be on social media or some meme like that. But then I look at your book, and, it, and it's fascinating because it essentially, in a sense, is one of those paths to get from a fear-based, ego-driven mindset to really discovering meaning, whether it's in your work or the influence you have on society, the impact that you make in your community. So speak to that. I mean, how did you get to this mindset as far as understanding these ideals or principles and then writing about them in an, in an incredible way? Great question. I hadn't thought of this before. You mentioned you know, Maslow's hierarchy in this question, but in some ways, what's happened in our society is we have found all these ways to meet our physiological needs, to meet some of our basic safety needs. But as the world changes more and more quickly, I think a lot of our basic safety needs start to become unmet, right? Because we get so stressed out because the world is changing so fast, we, we feel suddenly not stable anymore. Yeah, and we start seeking to, that shuts down our creativity. Now, I had never thought of it before along Maslow's hierarchy, which I wrote about in my first book, but it's true. If you feel safe and secure, you're going to be able to go out and be creative. That's, you know, creative is higher level on Maslow's hierarchy than just basic safety. But what I write about in unsafe thinking is what tends to happen when we 
confront a changing world is we feel anxiety. That's just natural. It's just part of human response. And in fact, if you try not to feel anxiety, essentially, you're going to feel more of it. It's, it's called experiential avoidance. When you talk yourself into not feeling things, you feel stronger. Mm-hmm. So we feel anxiety. And when we do, there's all these processes in the brain that cause us to shut down our creative capacities. We do this partly because anxiety back in the, on the savannah meant a lion was jumping out at you, right? Someone's going to kill you. So you don't like sit down and whiteboard a bunch of ideas. You just run away. You do the most obvious thing you can. And so we're programmed under conditions of anxiety to shut down new thinking. But of course, when the world is changing faster and faster, it's new thinking we most need. And so that's what I call the safe thinking cycle, where it's just like, we get nervous, we say we got to do something different, but then we go to work and we do the exact same thing and we wonder why and say, okay, tomorrow I'll do something different. But now it's even more urgent. So we have less like likelihood of doing it anything different in the next day. Turns out the way out of that cycle is not to try to avoid situations that cause anxiety. That just makes us smaller and smaller. We have to reframe anxiety as fuel for creativity. When we say, oh, nothing I've ever done before that was creative happened without me feeling incredibly anxious and without moving into spaces that scared me. That's where my creative edge is, out of my comfort zone there. And there's really good science about how we can talk to ourselves about seeking and moving towards anxiety rather than finding ways to avoid it, to unlock creativity. I learned this myself just because I built this company around experimentation and fun, wacky cartoons and ideas. And as I became more and more of an expert and people came to me saying, hey, can you repeat what you did in the past? Can you get me some of that viral activity? I became less experimental and exploratory and I scaled my company from two to 40 people. I started making all these rules and processes and I started getting less and less creative and less and less happy, basically, as I started achieving those goals that I thought would make me happy. And I tried so hard to change myself, but I was so stuck in that safe thinking cycle that I couldn't. So really, I had to go out and read a ton of science and talk to 100 people who I admired. And it was only in doing that that I started to understand my own brain enough to learn how to start making change. And so I turned that into a book. Was that a gradual process of as you were interviewing people and talking to people? Or were there like a handful that just totally smacked you in the head and and made you have those type of epiphany moments? Yeah, I did have some conversations, a few conversations where I was like, oh, a lot of times I think we think that the big questions are unfathomable and there is no answer to. But I think if you really start to ask the right people, you find that the people have thought about this before and they have answers. One of the first people that I that opened my eyes, and I, it didn't happen until like the conversation was over, was talking to Steve Kerr, the coach of the Golden State Warriors. And he told me this amazing story. But when I told him this idea of unsafe thinking, he said, like, how do we get out of our patterns? How do we take risks? How do we change ourselves when we need it most? He kind of laughed at me and he was like, you know, actually it's all about getting safe. And I was like, oh no, I'm going to have to hang up the phone now because you're not going to support my thesis here. But he told me this story and then came back around to help me out. He told me this story about how when he first came up in the league, he was kind of skinny. He wasn't very tall. He's a great three-point shooter, but he, was, he felt like he couldn't, he was an imposter basically. He didn't belong in the league. So when he got the ball at a big moment, he would pass, but it would always be to like Scottie Pippen or Michael Jordan. So no one ever thought, you know, why are you passing the ball, dude? He just would pass it and he'd get away with, you know, hiding. And one time when Michael Jordan had a flu in game six of the finals, I guess it might've been against the Jazz. The jazz. Yeah, I think it was. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he couldn't pass. He put up the shot, ended the series, and he realized how much time he had been wasting, feeling like he didn't belong. And he said, when I became a coach, I realized I had to help my guys first feel that they belong before we could go out and take any risks at all. So I did two things. I made a space where there was the locker room and another space, which was the arena. 
And in the locker room, I made it completely safe for them to be themselves, to feel like they belonged, to feel like they could take risks so that when they went on the court in the arena, they could get truly unsafe and play this whole new brand of basketball. And, you know, there's a lot of science that then flowed out of this about psychological safety. And if you want a creative company, yeah, you need to have not too many rules and too many processes. But first, you have to make sure that your people feel safe. And if they don't, they'll never take the big risks. So that was a complete like counterintuitive shift for me where I was thinking, you know, how do you unburden yourself and just go crazy? And really, it's about making sure that everyone feels that kind of comfort and protection. Again, Maslow's hierarchy, get those basic needs met and your company is going to flower. And there's a lot of stuff you can do to make that happen. Changing incentive structures, celebrating rule breakers, incentivizing productive failures and good questions rather than getting the right answers. All these things I talk about in the book about how do you unleash that creativity in your company. What's been, first off, this is fascinating. And that was an incredible, that was an incredible anecdote. Because I agree, I, I look at an environment of a business mainly from personal experience. And I think the environment does dictate how people manage anxiety and deal with anxiety or manage fear or take risks to become creative or to be creative. And this is more on a micro scale as far as a business is concerned. But again, going back to what we were talking about in the beginning, how are you seeing maybe this mindset or paradigm that people have affecting more of a macro things? I know we have so much device, you know, the, the country is very divisive position right now, mostly in a political sense. But do you see an impact in society on a macro level uh, based on companies that are championing some of these ideals? You mean like, is it starting in companies and then affecting society on a, a broader level? Is that what yeah. you mean? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I looked quite a bit at how companies overcome and how they kind of can create new communities within the companies that get far more creative. I don't yet know that those experiments are now like bleeding out into making a more productive society. I talk in the book about some social change makers who have managed to do exactly that and then inspire companies the other way around. So for instance, I tell the story of Jeffrey Brown, who was a minister in Boston. And in his neighborhood, you know, there's the most murders in Boston happening in his neighborhood. And he wanted to build this church, but no one could come to church because it was so dangerous. And he wanted to work with the at-risk youth. He had this idea that there's like these enemies out there. There's like the gang members who are killing everyone. And as a Christian minister, he hated them. He wanted to find these at-risk youth and protect them. But none of the at-risk youth would come to him. And then one day, a kid died outside of his church in the middle of the night. And he realized he wasn't even there to, to do anything because he was never at the church at night. He was never on the streets at night. So he walked around the streets one night and he met his enemies, the gang members, and he started talking to them, a harrowing moment for him. But they kind of knew exactly what was needed to stop the violence. And Brown connected them to the police, he connected them to the mayor, and they did this thing called the Boston Miracle. They collaborated on solutions which brought murders in Boston down 66% hmm. and uh, started scaling across the nation. And what Brown told me was like, if you don't sit down with your enemies and get face to face with them, you're not going to find those solutions. And in companies, that's true too. Cognitive diversity within companies is what creates creativity. A lot of companies have been hiring for cultural fit, finding people that we get along with, who are like us, who share our values. And really that means we wind up with these very kind of narrow solutions. We're learning to tolerate people that we don't particularly like, who challenge us, who don't share our values is very important. And it's that face-to-face -face interaction and that grit that allows us to, to express ourselves to others who don't agree with us that unleashes our creative abilities. So I looked at some science that said, if you go and read uh, news sites, 
that, you know, to open your mind that don't agree with your political point of view, what happens is it's called a backlash effect. You're going to be even more entrenched in your original view because you're going to come up with all these ideas why this is a conspiracy and it's not true and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But if you sit down with somebody and have lunch who doesn't agree with you, you're not going to convince each other and change each other's minds, but you're both going to get smarter. And so I love that idea. And I feel like to this political question, you know, if you can have some friends on the other side of the aisle and have goodwill conversations with them without that fear that one of you is going to win and one of you is going to lose, it really expands your mental capacities and your ability to create great messages and great products. So and I told man, that's, it's such a profound point. And I look at, I see it and maybe I have a, a tainted view of things, but I do see a lot of companies that are acclimating to this newer environment, right? Where it's not a 30-year, 40-year career. There's kind of a, a, in a sense, transient type of employee base really trying to discover meaningful work. But at the same time, I think the environments of companies are adjusting just out of sheer competition. But still looking at the political environment, people are not sitting down and having conversations where the barrier of fear of being wrong is a steel wall. But I look at just certain signs of whether it's authors like you, influencers like you, I know Simon Sinek is in, in that camp uh, as well. And you have a lot of, even there's a lot of podcasts talking about it right now, a lot of media talking about it. And I, I don't know, it, it's, it's exciting to me because nothing good comes from being afraid of being wrong and defending a position just out of fear, not out of wanting to understand. Yeah. And, uh, and so I love the message. And I think it's one of those messages, whether it's for business or whether it's for pursuing a, a career as an individual. I think that's really the grassroots idea behind it. And hopefully the momentum continues because we need some help. There's so much crap going on in, in society. And I think that the younger generation, I would say under 45 years old, right, I think is grasping some of these things, even though we have some major challenges. Do you see the same thing? Or are you still seeing some rift? Oh, well, I mean, I, you know, it'd be crazy to say that there's not rift, that they're out there. But I do think that you're right, that there's an interest in understanding ourselves. And that's maybe a little bit new. I mean, you mentioned kind of like podcasting, and I think you just mentioned podcasting, this idea that like, people are now interested in tuning into long form thinking, right? And interested in brain science and books like business books that are coming out that teach us how our minds work, uh, popularize some of the deeper science. I do think there's a hunger for it. And one of the pieces of advice I got from one of the people I interviewed, a, a scientist, a psychological researcher said, the most important thing is that we think about how we're thinking, bringing that mindfulness to looking at your own brain and being like, how did I get to this idea? And how do I generally think? And might I try some different ways of thinking? That brings me hope. And I do think that younger people still have that opportunity to reprogram or to question some of their foundations. Whereas older people, especially if they're feeling insecure and stressed out and being left behind, maybe are less likely to want to look at those underpinnings. So whether the left is right or the right is right, or the, you believe in your political beliefs, if you're not stepping back at least and, and questioning where they come from and where could you be wrong, I think you are missing the opportunity. And that doesn't make you a traitor to your tribe just to have those questions. But I think we live in a time where it's considered traitorous to even think on your own. And that's, that's too bad. It is. And I do see signs that there's acceptance of others. And I, but it's definitely a, an uphill battle because of how ingrained society has become because of you know, a lot of what we mentioned in the beginning, because whether it's school or whether it's the workforce or especially during the industrial era of how people were trained as far as being workers and being told what to do and not thinking for themselves. Yeah. 
But anyway, I, you know, that, this is humanity. And I think that most people are really, they are seeking meaning. They are seeking fundamental ideals. It's just, yeah, it's the influence of uh, their societal surroundings. It's just very difficult to create new neural pathways. You know? But I think that there is a lot of focus on it from what I'm seeing. And, uh, and you're part of it. And so thank you. Thank you for doing that. Well, I know you don't have all the time in the world to, to be talking about this stuff. How can people follow you to learn more about what your mission is, learn more about what you're up to, and, uh, and also get the book? Yeah, they can find me at jonasax.com or at jonasax on Twitter. And my books are available wherever you shop for books online. So yeah, please check them out. Well, any final thoughts or words regarding uh, our topics of conversation today before we part? Yeah, I think that I often get asked, and this has been a really interesting conversation at the high philosophical level, which I personally enjoy, but I often get asked, what can I do tomorrow? How can I actually unlock my creativity or play with this or test this out? And so people want to know, how do you just taste it? And so a couple of pieces of advice I could give if you're thinking along those lines is, one is go out and do something that you're bad at. The more that you spend time in your area of expertise, the slower you become to learn. In fact, if you think of yourself as an expert, you're more likely to be wrong in most situations. But when you humble yourself and do something that you're truly bad at, you get all kinds of creative benefits. So if you can carve out an hour a week to do things that you're terrible at, that might kind of jog some new creative capacities. Uh, we talked about, you know, go out and find someone who doesn't agree with you and spend a little time, take them out to lunch. It can be really powerful and generative. And then I would just say, back to that point on anxiety, is the next time you're feeling anxiety and nervousness, most of our automatic reactions are to find a way to take that anxiety away, to get around it. And I would just say, notice it, name it, maybe even talk about it with your team, and then see that as a chance to move toward it. What would it mean to go deeper into it as opposed to find an automatic way around it? If you try any of those things and they work for you, then you can start to pick up on, on other ones. And I believe that the idea is not to try to radically reform ourselves all at once, but to try to take baby steps towards more flexible mindsets. But I think that's what you, I mean, you hit on, again, it goes back to some of our topics of conversation. It's like there are these signals that we all have, like the responses to certain circumstances. And I think that fear and anxiety are really power. I think the, one of the more powerful emotions, right, and, and influences, but usually they're contextualized as a bad thing. But I think in your book, right, you talk about them that the context actually is just basically a signal that there's an amazing learning opportunity. And I look at just, you know, the most painful situations I've ever been in have been my most profound moments that helped me and changed me, changed me the most. And I think if that context is reframed, then that is, it's one of the most powerful things that can help a person as far as their growth is concerned. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we all spend a ton of time trying to avoid those moments that you're talking about. I mean, luckily we can't avoid them all, right? Because that's what gives us those growth opportunities. But if we turn, took that energy we use trying to avoid those moments, and sought the match a little bit more. Not the easiest way to live, but it is the most growth oriented. So, Well, Jonah, this has been awesome, man. Thank you so much for your time. Again, we'll post all of uh, Jonah's links, how you can follow him based on what he mentioned, as well as a uh, link to purchase his books on the show notes. So make sure you check those out. All right, Jonah. Thanks again, man. Appreciate Great. it. Bye. Thank you for joining us as the Wealth Standard Podcast spends all of 2018 celebrating life, liberty, and property. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes, and we'll see you on the next one.